and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode, we're taking a dive into the world of evolutionary genetics to witness the fitness. We ask whether street-smart city-dwelling birds are genetically different from their country bumpkin relatives, how butterflies got their brightly patterned wings, and if today's genetic research would have blown Darwin's mind. First up, what do all these three things have in common? Sonic Hedgehog, Scott of the Antarctic and Swiss Cheese. They're all the names of genes or mutations and they're all featured in January. Every day throughout January, the Genetic Society will be tweeting about a different gene. So follow them at at UK to get your fix of genetic fun from Armadillo to Van Gogh. Back in November, I took a trip to Exeter for the Genetic Society Autumn Meeting, from genotype to phenotype to fitness, exploring how an organism's underlying genetic makeup, its genotype, affects how it turns out, that's its phenotype, which in turn affects its chances of survival and reproduction in the world, or its fitness. Charles Darwin summarised this idea back in 1868, writing, The power of selection, whether exercised by man or brought into play under nature through the struggle for existence and the consequent survival of the fittest, absolutely depends on the variability of organic beings. Without variability, nothing can be affected. To find out how researchers at the meeting are putting Darwin's theory to the test 150 years on, I caught up with one of the organisers, Dr Alistair Wilson from the University of Exeter, during a rather noisy coffee break. Broadly speaking, it's an evolutionary genetics meeting, so everybody here is interested in evolution. But we wanted to make the phenotype, so the set of traits expressed by individuals, whether they're animals or plants or whatever, we wanted to put that sort of in the centre of what we were thinking about. And I suppose that comes from being evolutionary biologists as well as geneticists. We're interested in natural selection. And natural selection acts on traits, right? So although we're sort of all focused on what's going on with genetics and how new genetic technologies can help us, ultimately we've still got to think about phenotypes. And if we want to understand evolution, or at least adaptive evolution by natural selection, it's all about how the genes influence the phenotype ultimately because it's the phenotype that then influences fitness. Obviously because a, a gene is just like a length of DNA, it needs to be expressed, it needs to make something, it needs to then have cells that make a body and, or an organism and do stuff and that's what evolution acts on is, is how does this organism interact with its environment, what's it responding to? Exactly, it's the doing stuff, it's the, um, it's the point at which the organism is interacting with the environment and what the consequences of that are for whether it can reproduce, how much it can reproduce, whether it can survive. But actually interesting, you said, you said, you know, a gene is a bit of DNA. Well, it is, but it, before it was a bit of DNA, it's also a unit of inheritance. And one of the things we've got in this meeting is we've got all different types of geneticists. So some people are studying bits of DNA, some people are editing bits of DNA, but we've also got geneticists in the broader sense who are using more statistical approaches to study how traits are being inherited in populations, sometimes with no molecular data at all, using sort of pedigree-based approaches and relatedness, sort of classical quantitative genetic approaches. So we've got everything from molecular genetics through genomics, population genetics, and also uh, basically evolutionary ecology, and there's lots of ecologists here as well as geneticists, so it's sort of crossing the, the boundaries a little bit. 
sort of themes are the talks going to cover? What kinds of things are, are we looking forward to hearing about? So very broadly, we've put the talks into four kind of theme sessions. The themes are very porous, and we, we already seeing that people are, are straddling multiple themes. But the first one we, we had was, or, or having, is, is genotypes to phenotypes. So this is perhaps the most obvious thing you think about when you think about evolutionary genetics, is, okay, how are those phenotypes built? What is the way in which genotype maps to a set of traits that are expressed? And we heard about that this morning. Then we're moving into a session that's about conflict and constraint, because one of the things about natural selection is that it doesn't act on single traits in isolation. So actually, if we make genetic changes or genetic changes happen, then there can be multiple sort of phenotypic consequences, some of which may be good for an organism, some of which may be bad. And so lots of the way we understand sort of phenomena like parent-offspring conflict, intersexual conflict, things like that, actually come down to the idea that there are conflicts within the genome in terms of their effects on fitness. So, you know, some things are good, some things are bad. After that, um, we're moving into a session that we've called Genes in the Environment, and that's really where we're starting to bring in some of the ecology, because it's all very well trying to understand what it is that, that a genotype does in terms of affecting a trait in some kind of laboratory system. But actually, does it cause trait variation in the wild? Because that's really where selection acts. And then the final session uh, that we're going to do is called Micro to Macro. And we're moving from thinking about uh, how traits evolve within populations, for instance, with selection acting on genetically variable traits, to seeing whether we can use patterns of, of differences among species, um, think about speciation and hybridization genetics as a way to understand evolution. We've seen a few talks this morning, and one of the things that really jumped out at me was the idea of making really quite small changes in the control switches, the regulatory elements that turn genes on and off, and that they can make really quite big changes in organisms. And I've, it's always struck me when you talk to people who are like, well, evolution's really difficult to see how it works, because if you make tiny changes in DNA, how do you make a big change in an organism? And I found that really striking. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll be honest, I, I did too. And I think we, you know, we started with the, the last talk that was about plants and also earlier work uh, that was presented on, on butterfly wings and patterning. And it's really striking that you can have these sometimes relatively small number of genes of, of major effect. It's striking to me in part because actually I do come from that other camp. I come from the camp where I, I study traits that for the most part we think of as probably being down to loads and loads of genes with small effects. So I think what it, you know, it's an eye-opener to me because it sort of rocks my worldview, but that, of course, is, is why we're here, right? To kind of challenge each other's uh, viewpoints. And I think what it shows is that we have to be kind of open and alive to the possibility of all kinds of different genetic architectures underpinning traits. And of course, actually, that structure of the genetic architecture, how many genes there are, where they're distributed, whether they have big effects or small effects, that really feeds back to impact the dynamics of the, of the way traits evolve under selection. So, I mean, it's all good stuff, really. And it really is evolution's playground, isn't it? I love all the different variations you can get by making small changes or, or making uh, small changes that have very big effects. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the genetic technology is, is just incredible that we have now. And so that's super exciting. You know, there's a place for that, but there's also a place for, actually, we still need the field biologists. If we want to understand this, there still need to be people out there looking in nest boxes and measuring birds or you know whatever it might be whatever the organisms are so you we can't do i think evolutionary genetics just by manipulating genomes we have to be doing everything we have to be doing everything from studying dna and manipulating dna right the way up to doing field biology still so it's a wide spread of activities 
And finally, and very briefly, it's now 150 years or more since Darwin published the On the Origin of Species by Natural Selection. What do you think he would think if he was at this meeting today? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, trick question. Um, I have absolutely no idea. So uh, there's always a quote you can find from Darwin that seems to suggest he's thought of everything. Um, I hope he'd be enthusiastic. I hope he'd be impressed with how people have taken his ideas and interpreted them. But of course, Darwin knew nothing about genetics as well. So this would be uh, you know, a whole new world for him. So I hope he'd be uh, pinning his ears back and, and learning as much as he could. I, I imagine if, if he was on Twitter, he'd be posting like the mind Exactly, yeah, yeah, which is kind of what I've been doing as well this morning, so yeah. That's Alistair Wilson from the University of Exeter. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. Please do take a minute to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from, and it would be great if you could rate and review the show and tell all your friends. As Alistair mentioned, one of the first talks we heard at the meeting was on butterfly wings. If you've ever taken a trip to South America, or even to a butterfly house in a less exotic location, you've probably seen examples of Heliconius, also known as passion vine butterflies, with their brightly coloured and dazzlingly patterned wings. There's a huge number of species of Heliconius living throughout the New World and up into the southern United States, and each one of them has its own genetic and evolutionary story to tell about how it got its particular pattern, as I found out when I chatted to Chris Jiggins from the University of Cambridge. Well, they've been studied way back since the days of Darwin, and they were sort of showing off to predators because they're bad to eat. And so they're very sort of visually uh, attractive and, and beautiful and quite easy to catch. And then they're also, uh, they have lots of mimicry, so they attracted the attention of early evolutionary biologists such as Henry Walter Bates, who noticed that there were lots of different species that evolved to look the same. And really it was studying these South American butterflies that, that led to the theory of mimicry. Just describe to me what some of them look like. So if we had a few different species here, what kinds of patterns and, and wonderful colours would we be seeing in these butterflies? So they have very uh, bold patches of red and yellow on a black background typically. So they're very simple patterns. Um, there are sort of bands and stripes. They use the sort of classic warning colours of bright red, bright yellow. And what do we know then about the genes that are involved in making these patterns? If you say that several different species who are genetically different have managed to get the same patterns, like what's going on there? What's going on at a genetic level to give them these patterns and then how they've evolved this similarity? What we found really, which is kind of remarkable, is that there's this amazing amount of diversity of different patterns in all these different populations and species. But the more we study this diversity, it all seems to boil down to basically four genes that have very large effects. So there's lots of different alleles in different populations that control the expression of these genes and produce all of this amazing diversity in wing patterns. So, you know, of all the hundreds of genes that must be involved in making a wing, it seems to be again and again just a small number of them that are picked out by evolution to change when you evolve a new phenotype. That's kind of weird because from what I know about genetics, you know, even something as simple as the number of fingers you've got or, or height or all these things, there's loads and loads and loads of genes and loads of tiny little variations in them all, all add up. It's kind of weird to find like just four genes gives you this incredible multitude of patterns. 
Yeah, that's right. And so, yeah, some traits like height or growth seem to be controlled by many, many genes, small effect. But other traits that are important in natural populations, we find this pattern of just a small number of genes with large effects. And the, the, I guess these wing patterns of these butterflies are sort of at the extreme end of that. They're incredibly diverse, but all of that diversity is controlled by a small handful of genes with very large effects. So let's drill down into this a little bit more. When you actually look at these four genes, what makes the difference between a butterfly with one kind of pattern and a butterfly with another kind of pattern? So is it like a change in the actual gene itself? What's going on? Yeah, so we think it's uh, all changes in the DNA sequence of non-coding DNA next to the gene, the bit of the DNA that makes the protein. So it's actually not changing the protein, the product of the gene, it's changing the instructions that tell it where and when to be expressed. And so by expressing these genes in different patterns across the wing, in different places in the wing, you can produce these different patterns. So, you know, as you develop a, an organ, um, there are sort of complex network of genes that tell cells where they are, essentially. Are you at the top bit of the heart or the bottom of the heart? And a wing is the same. There are these genes that um, sort of tell cells where they are in the wing and so what sort of development pathway they should go down. And so the patterning genes can lock into that information that's already there, sort of specifying the geography of the wing and um, turn on in different combinations to make different patches in different places and on the on the wing as, they, as it develops. When I sort of think about that, say, when you think about like a computer program, if you're going to use a computer program to design something, you're effectively tweaking the parameters then. You're saying, let's have a bit more of this here and a bit less of this here, and then, okay, here's this gene, let's have a bit more of this here and a bit less of this here. Yes, exactly. So your um, genes are regulated uh, often by transcription factors and so you can alter the binding site for that transcription factor so it binds more strongly or less strongly and that turns that gene on in that particular patch or turns it off as the case may be and if you sort of do that in the right combination then you can turn on a red big red patch on the tip of the wing or you can turn it off again. These butterflies caught the attention of biologists because of this mimicry, the fact that you get genetically different species that look the same. When you start delving into the genetics and what's going on, do you find that these species have got to the same place through similar genetic changes? Yes, absolutely. That, I mean, that was one of the first things we showed was that the mimetic species actually use the same genes to make their mimetic patterns. And sometimes they do that by sort of reinventing the wheel, so they will evolve the same switches or similar switches in the same place in the genome uh, independently in different populations. And sometimes they do it actually by stealing variation from their relatives. So hybridization between closely related species can mean that genes can pass between species. And that means that if you, you know, if there's selection to mimic a species that's nearby, you actually might do that by stealing the genetic variants from your neighboring species. Go and breed with it rather yes. than evolving it yourself, exactly. you lazy butterflies. Exactly. What's the next thing that you want to understand about these beautiful butterflies? I and mean, it's lovely to say, okay, we found just four genes and by tweaking the, the regulatory dials, you can get this incredible array of patterns. What do you want to know next? One of the things we have found out already is that you can um, take existing variation and shuffle it into new combinations in order to produce diversity. So you can produce new combinations of patches by taking existing genetic variation and putting it together in new combinations. So even very close little pieces of sequence in the genome can be recombined to make new combinations. So that's one thing, but we still don't really know within those little regions of DNA. Uh, we know that it contains the instructions to make that patch on the wing. We don't really know 
what genes it's interacting with and how many changes you need. You know, how many changes in the DNA does it take to make a new patch on the wings? We haven't really figured that out yet. And that would be interesting to know if we're thinking about you know, how difficult it is to evolve a new pattern. Uh, we'd like to know, you know how many changes are involved. Are they changes of sort of sequential small effect or is there, is there one DNA change that makes that big new patch on the wing? So dissecting actually down to the individual base pair changes would be uh, one, one direction that we're going. Yes. Chris Jiggins from the University of Cambridge. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. Find us on Twitter at, at geneticsunzip or online at geneticsunzip.com. Most of the talks at the autumn meeting were about populations of organisms living in the wild or in closely monitored laboratory conditions. From Chris Jiggins' South American butterflies or the dazzling array of closely related cichlid fish found in African lakes to the sexual predilections of strange stalk-eyed flies living in a lab in London. But as I discovered when I spoke with Anne Charmontier from CNRS in Montpellier, France, evolution is at work in the heart of our urban environments too. So actually I started out by being this field person that goes out in the wild and in the forest and this is uh, the way I envisaged to study evolution was to study in the wild and I actually until recently I never really thought about studying evolution cities until I read uh, studies on how a lot of people that are investigating phenotypes in cities are finding that birds, because this is what I work on, but also many other taxa differ in many different traits when we measure them in cities compared to when we measure them in the wild. Oh, I've heard stories about this, that the city birds, they have really loud voices or they, they sing in different ways so that they can be heard over cars and sirens. Yeah, that's, I guess, one of the most obvious thing we can measure is the volume of the song, but there's also song complexity and also many, many other traits. So basically almost every trait that we've looked at in birds in the city differ from the forest and this was kind of a surprise initially and also because I've been working for a long time on how environmental heterogeneity in the wild affects phenotypic evolution I discovered that contrasting forests with city birds gives actually very strong results compared to what we can find in the mosaic of habitats that birds inhabit outside cities so I guess that's what got me excited to realize you know, city birds are so different in so many ways. I want to understand why. So if you're saying that a bird, say you took a bird from a mountain area or a forest area, they'd be more similar than these like weird streetwise city birds that you're studying. In many ways, yes. So for example, we're studying um, personality of birds and we're finding that birds in the city behave very differently for many species that what they would behave uh, outside of cities. Of course, because they're habituated to humans, but also it's more complex than just that. Like they're usually more aggressive, but they also explore their environment in very different ways. So of course our evolutionary mind brings us to think that this is probably an adaptive response to the urban environment, which is what we're trying to test, basically. And cities and the way that we understand them now, there have been big towns and cities for thousands of years, but not in the way that we have them now in the 21st century. How are animals keeping up and adapting to the modern city? What are some of the things that you find most interesting and the kinds of challenges that these organisms are up against? Yes. 
This is a very good question. So, for example, um, studies are flourishing on pollution and how animals are adapting to pollution. But uh, I think you've actually put your finger on a very interesting features of cities is that some cities are very old and some other cities or other areas of cities are much younger. And so this is where I see a huge opportunity that we can compare very old cities to much younger cities or old areas of cities to much younger areas. This is something I want to do in the future, but this is, it's really very novel. So we don't have yet the um, background that can tell us exactly what differs between old cities and new cities that the animals would have adapted to, but I think there's a huge potential there. And obviously some organisms will be born or, or grow in the city where their parents were, but some will come from outside and they'll move from a rural environment and come to the city, you know, as humans do, oh, let's go and seek a new job and a new life in the city. Do you think that there's a difference between the kinds of, say, birds that are like, no, I want to stay in the countryside, and the sort of birds are like, I fancy the bright lights? I think there is. I, I'm pretty sure that there is non-random dispersal, non-random gene flow between natural habitats and urban habitats. And this is actually what kind of convinced me to take the genomics approach on this project, to try and, and figure out population structure, but also the direction of gene flow. This is something we're still working on, but I do believe that some individuals are already better adapted to the city environment than others and this is true for humans as well so i'm also interested in that really like what is the variation that predetermines whether a bird will decide to make a home in the city or not and hopefully the genomics will tell us this story and finally evolution is something that we tend to think of as acting over hundreds of thousands of years but the kinds of cities that we're seeing have really grown in the past 100 years or, or less. Studying evolution on that incredibly condensed scale, what are some of the challenges and how do you actually see what's evolving on that kind of compressed scale? Mm. So on the short scale that we're looking at, it is possible that we will see a lot of plastic response and that it's going to be more difficult to see evolutionary response. So by that you mean it's organisms changing their behaviour but not necessarily showing in their genes? Exactly, yeah. So obviously when birds arrive in the city environment, if they are lighter and smaller, it might be just because they're not as well fed as they would be in a natural forest with lots of insects and lots of caterpillars. So there's bound to be uh, plastic responses, and I'm also interested in that actually, and plasticity itself can evolve. So yeah, it is trickier to demonstrate genetic evolution than it is to witness plastic uh, responses to a new environment. But what we do think is that the urban environment is so different compared to more natural places that the selection pressures in the cities are very strong for certain traits like um, behavioral traits or reproductive success and so we do think that this selection is so strong that evolution might happen in just a few generations and that we might witness it. So actually you're saying you could end up with say a city species that can no longer interbreed with the country species? Or do you think we could start seeing that, just like city birds that will have nothing to do with the, their country mates, they won't mate with them, they won't hang out with them, they won't interbreed with them, and effectively they are a city species? 
So on the species I'm studying, for the time being, we're talking about ecotypes. So morphotypes and ecotypes, because we know that birds are different, uh, but they still interbreed very easily. But of course, it might be the first step to speciation. Uh, it's going to take a long time before we witness that. So maybe studying microbes or other types of organisms that have much shorter generation time will be better if we want to like witness this type of speciation event in cities. That's Anne Charmontier from CNRS in Montpellier, France. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. If you've got any questions or feedback, or if you'd like to suggest topics for future shows, just drop me a line. It's podcast at geneticsunzipped.com. 2019 is the Genetic Society's centenary year, and there are events planned across the whole of the UK and online to celebrate. It's also a year in which we have a new president, Professor Lawrence Hurst from the University of Bath. He was at the autumn meeting in Exeter in his scientific capacity as an evolutionary geneticist, but I took the opportunity to nab him for a chat about his priorities for the society over the coming year and into the future. Historically, the Genetic Society has been one of these wonderful forces for good for the community of geneticists in the UK, but more broadly as well. And there's no reason to disturb that. That's a great ongoing project. And what I would like to see um, is encouragement of early career researchers. That's, again, something the Genetic Society is very, very good at. But that would also include, I think, a shift maybe away from just an academic focus to also incorporating commercial genetics a bit more, but also opening up other possibilities to our early career researchers. There's very much an idea that you do a PhD and a postdoc and a postdoc and then lectureship, but there are many other careers in genetics. So I'd like to be bringing in the industrial genetics in a bit more, opening up these avenues to our early career researchers as well. But in the background and in the context of doing what the Genetic Society has done incredibly well all this time. And of course it is such an exciting time to be a geneticist. I don't think there's ever been a better time. So we're, we're 100 years old, so it's, it's a very young science in many regards. But if I tell you that of all data ever collected by humans, over the entirety of human history, 90% of it was collected in the last two years and nearly all of that is gene sequence data. We are in a second industrial revolution and it's a genetics revolution. So I think we need to be at the forefront of helping and encouraging what we do with all this data. And I think the, the Genetic Society can be really key because the Genetic Society is unusual because we do represent everything from molecular and cellular biologists, molecular geneticists, but also transmission geneticists, quantitative geneticists, population and evolutionary geneticists. And now is a fantastic time for these folk to talk to each other. So I think there are really important dialogues to be had, for example, between the evolutionary geneticists on the one hand and the cancer geneticists on the other hand. So those sorts of interactions can be mediated by the Genetic Society and have been done very successfully in the past, and now is a fantastic time to be doing it. The opportunities are enormous. This is the Genetic Society podcast. One of the important things for me as a science communicator and a former geneticist is about communicating this incredible science to the public. How do we understand genetics? How do we talk about it? What do you see as the Genetic Society role for communicating this complicated but really exciting science? Well, let me start off by not answering that question. 
and answer a different one. So I'm actually very, very keen on the notion that education is the most powerful drug that we have. And like any drug treatment, what that means is we need to know how to administer the drug effectively. So we actually do, although I'm a classical geneticist and evolution geneticist, we actually do very large in-school trials working out how to teach evolution, how to teach genetics. And we've shown that you can do it very successfully in primary schools, for example. Both genetics and evolution can go in. Now, into that context, the genetic society can have a really important role. And one thing I'm really delighted about is that in this centenary year, the genetic society will be providing really quite a lot of the money for public engagement. And that also means grants for public engagement. So while normally our public engagement grants are of the order of £500, and with that you can do a lot of good, we're now moving to a scheme where you can apply for up to 1000 or for something more ambitious for 5000 So in principle you could do really good trials of not just go out and do public engagement, but also work out how best to do public engagement. It does tend to be something that is very much led by enthusiasm, but not necessarily with a good scientific base to say, actually, this is the best way to do it. And what we do know from that literature is that there are ways of doing public engagement that can actually be damaging. There are ways that are incredibly good, but you can really put your foot in it if you don't know what you're doing. But that being said, I've yet to meet any case where a geneticist goes into a school and simply enthuses about their subject, and that enthusiasm is not simply infectious. I mean, it really is. A, and we see, for example, with some of the trials that we do, that one day's well-thought-through engagement with primary school peoples is life-transforming for the primary school children. So I think, yes, the Genetic Society is really well-placed to take this banner of public engagement and use the centenary as a, as a bouncing point, as it were, to, to enable that. So the Genetic Society is 100 years old this year. I'm always aware of the problems of asking people for this sort of future gazing. But where do you think the direction of travel is heading for the next 100 years? Obviously, you might not be president for the next 100 years, but where do you see the direction of travel heading? That's such a hard question. It really is. I mean, so who was it who said that um, prediction is really hard to do, especially if it's about the future? Um, so, so whenever I think about a question like that, I think, no, I really ought not to comment because I will just simply get it wrong. But, I mean, it's almost inevitable that we're going to see ever more genomic data. But I, what I'd hope for, rather than necessarily expect to see, what I'd hope for is a much better integration between our various tranches of genetics. There is so much to be gained from molecular geneticists talking to evolutionary geneticists, talking to quantitative geneticists, but also getting genetics out to the public, but also genetics into the industrial workplace as well. So roll on the next 100 years. Yes, and I will most assuredly not be president. <laughs> There's a prediction I will stand by. Professor Lawrence Hurst there, certainly not making any promises. Finally, you can still watch the fantastic Royal Institution Christmas Lectures on iPlayer in partnership with the Genetic Society and featuring the fantastic Alice Roberts, Aoife McLeisert and Fran Scott, all of whom appeared in the very first episode of Genetics Unzipped to give us a sneak peek behind the scenes. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references and everything else, head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip or email me at podcast at geneticsunzipped.com with any questions and feedback. Please do take a minute to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. And it would be great if you could rate and review. It really helps people find the show. And more importantly, 
please spread the word. Tell your friends, send out a tweet and share the love. Genetics Unzipped is presented by me, Kat Arney, and produced by First Create the Media for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world, dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard and the logo was designed by James Mayle. Thanks very much to the brilliant Hannah Varrell for production. Thank you for listening and until next time, goodbye. Thank <laughs> you.